Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles and a warm welcome back to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and the challenges of starting a business. We begin our fourth series with William Sargent, who founded his visual effects company over 30 years ago in London's Soho district and has just sold a majority stake to a Chinese group as he looks to tap into the fast-growing Chinese and Indian film markets. As he told me, the London location was key to the early success of the business. Soho was very much a center of the creative industries. My view is that The cluster that is Soho stroke the centre of London came about over 50 to 70 years. People forget this. There was obviously Tin Pan Alley, then there was the milk bars of the 50s and all of that music. Then there was Mary Quantum, the fashion in the 60s. Then there was the Beatles. Then there was David Bowie and the advertising, you know, the Sanchez and uh, Bartle Bogle. These were the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and every generation built on the previous generations, which wasn't necessarily their own, but it was creative industries. And we were all attracted to a space that clearly was where things happened then. But there was a lot of energy. And our clients in those first 10 years were within 500 yards of us, as were our competitors. It's never right to start a business because you're going to become a billionaire. In fact, you'll generally fail. You start because you have a passion for doing something right that you can't do in your own business, and that was the case here. There were four people who got together because we felt that we could use computers to do something visual in the film world, television world, and we were backing ourselves using a piece of equipment that had never been used before. It was a famous British company called Quantel who、um, created this technology, which was basically called the Frame Store. So, hence the Frame Store name, which was basically in film and television, it's either 24 or 25 frames a second. Hence, we were selling frames, and the device that we were using was a Frame Store, which is a digital device. So the two words coincided, and we set out to use computers to allow us to do what up to then had been done in a more manual way. Who were the clients in those early days? Oh,、um, advertising production companies and advertising agencies, and the BBC. We did titles for all sorts of BBC stuff. We did early BMW ads. You know, the UK. Don't forget, in the eighties, in particular, was the world centre of advertising creativity. I mean, the great ads of the world came out of this square half mile. And a lot of those people in that industry did go on to Hollywood. Oh, and, very and much so.、Films. If you think about Alan Parker, for example, Ridley Scott, Hugh Hudson. David Putnam, you know, the whole generation then became the generation of film, in the same way as the generation that we then went on to serve as pop promos. They then became today's great directors, the Michael Bay's, the Steve Barons of this world, because MTV started in the early to mid '80s, and so again, creativity builds on other generations' creativities. Success to us looked like 20 people, and we were very clear that anything beyond that would damage the quality. We're now heading for 1500. But that was our view. But we were very clear that we were a global company, 
We aspired to do clients within 500 yards, which was the major advertising agencies and so forth. But we knew that one day we wanted to work for Hollywood and it was just a matter of time. We borrowed 770 grand and we didn't have 770 grand to put together. We mortgaged everything. And if we got bust, there would have been a um, slight problem. What I negotiated was a leverage whereby the better we did, the more stock we ended up with. That was a perfectly fair. So if, in other words, if we didn't deliver the goods, then we'd have a smaller stake. And if we delivered the goods, we'd end up with a bigger stake. And I was able to show the shareholders, the external shareholders, that there was a fairness to it. They were film industry producers and directors, and so they were people who were in the space that we were in. They'd never invested in what was effectively a technology company. But I suspect if I'd gone for purely financial, I would have had it more difficult. I'd like to think I would have succeeded. I think today, if you look at the Silicon Valley model or the tech city model, people understand that those that deliver should end up with a significant chunk of the stock, even if they haven't put cash up. So I think probably we were an early manifestation of that model. What was the big break? Gosh, there's a series. The first major commercials director, Roger Woodburn, gave us a commercial, gave us credibility. You know, the first BBC commission gave us credibility. You know, business is made up of lots of milestones. But the one that shot us to international prominence was a project called Walking with Dinosaurs, which um, we did with a producer, Tim Haynes, and the BBC. And they had been trying to do effectively a wildlife program about dinosaurs. So it was in the genre of wildlife, so you're supposed to believe it was for real. And of course, had gone to the obvious major players in America because they didn't believe it could be done in the UK and gotten budgets of you know, very large quantities. And we had been quite inevitably in our approach, and so they obviously ended up on our doorstep. And I recognised this as something that if we could do it, it would actually be a breakthrough. And so we agreed with the BBC to jointly do a pilot, a 90-second pilot, to see could you genuinely convince an audience that the dinosaur in front of you on that piece of footage in the middle of the wild actually was shot by a wildlife cameraman. That was the thesis of the programme, right? And the 92nd was totally convincing because the finance was raised by the BBC at uh, MIPCOM, which is the annual television market, within, my understanding, is two hours of it opening. For a science-based programme, which, as you can imagine, the budgets were traditionally very low, in a prime-time slot on a Monday night. So this was ambitious in programming, ambitious in budget. The budget was, like, way beyond drama budget, even. And we convinced them through the pilot that we could do it, that it could be done at a price that was still enormous. And to this day, the BBC regrets selling off some territories because, of course, 110 million viewers later, it's been a huge success. At that point, our work wasn't being used in drama that much, other than your Doctor Who type, with hindsight, slightly hoaxy stuff. And so this was The Walking Dinosaurs and drama started to come together at that time. And it also opened up to television commissioners that the world of digital and visual effects could actually open a whole new world of programming. We won our first big award with a project called the Florentine Intimati, which we recreated the marriage of Ferdinand de' Medici in 1589. And it had been a musical performance at the proms, but to create it physically would have cost $10 million. We recreated it digitally. And it became a huge hit and won us what it was called the Pre-Italia, which was the European television Oscar equivalent. These all happened in around the same two-year period. It gave people the confidence that we had capacity, that we could handle scale, that clearly we were obviously creative in that, problem solvers. And once we established those credentials, 
what happened over the following 20 years really built on those two years, I think. What's interesting is that the scale came about because of our ambition on the work, not financial ambition, if you know what I mean. So if you want to do the best creative work, you have to be a certain scale. And if you want to make sure that you don't get exposed financially, then you need to have two or three of them going. And suddenly you find yourself at 250 people when you set out to be 20. And then one of the strong tenets I followed was that if you protect and look out for the company, it will take care of its people that are interested in it, which is obviously the shareholders, the employees whose jobs are there, and equally importantly, the creditors. And it's when you try to reward one of those three to the cost of the other two that something eventually goes wrong. If you take too big a dividend out, you leave yourself not enough cash to reinvest. Yeah. If you end up overpaying, you know what I mean? You get out of sync with the market and therefore your product's more expensive, you know? If you don't pay your creditors, then eventually you don't get credit. There's been three downturns in our 30 years. And I remember one coming out of it or going through it, thinking, I'm glad we stuck to that principle. When 2008 recession hit us, middle of 2009, what basically happened um, was the advertising community budgets obviously went down because when in a recession, you yeah. switch off the marketing budget. And advertising was about, at that point, 55, 60% of our business. So in a fixed-based business, which is ours, you don't need a lot to drop to begin to um, have a problem. But, you know, I felt it coming a year earlier. So I dealt with the people side with a devil by natural wastage. In other words, we just didn't replace people from the beginning of 2008. My senior team and I took significant pay cuts. And as we went down on the, uh, the wage bill, people took smaller pay cuts. And because the banks could see that we were totally in control of our cost base, they had no questions about you know, making sure that our credit lines remained in place and that. So how bad did it get in 91? We were growing and doing okay. And we had, don't forget, we had the BBC work and we had ITV work and that. So I wasn't entirely dependent on advertising. All I remember was that our growth was hit. And I'll give you an example. We were buying a piece of equipment. So we were borrowing half a million pounds to buy a piece of equipment, a graded film. And the week before it arrived, Barclays decided that they were no longer going to lend to the media sector. And we were banked to Barclays at the time. Mm. Head office said, no lending to media companies. So I had a borrow at 18% from a Hungarian bank. I was pretty pissed off. Never forgot that particular lesson, you know, about yeah. make sure you've got multiple lines of credit. <laughs> going forward, not just one bank manager. It's always remembering that it takes very little to go the wrong way, and you should focus more on that than the very little that goes the right way. Think about how vulnerable you are. You know, how many of your clients reducing their budget by 25% would it take for you to have a problem? And if you did have the problem, what would you do? My understanding is banks are reluctant to shut people when they're in a downward spiral because they're going to get nothing from it. Mm. But when they feel that the company's in enough of a recovery mode, that's when you get all about stories that you hear about people when they're working their way back into success that mm. they get themselves having a problem with their liquidity. You know, cash flow in the end is critical to any business. You really do have to know where your money is and not what the PL is telling you. <laughs> and the, again, as a CEO, it's important to know, A, what are the markers that are going to hit you economically, but equally, what are the chain of events that could derail you? Quite often, there's nothing you can do about them, but at least you know which means you can make a phone call and saying, just for the avoidance of doubt, can I just get confirmation that you're still going to spend next year's budget? Because generally when you ask a straight question, you'll get a straight answer. These things always have to be one-on-one, -on -one, talking directly to a decision maker, saying, look, I'd love to do twice the amount of business with you next year and that. I think I can deliver it. The guy might say, yeah, but you're not big enough. 
Yeah. You go, well, let me show you how I'm big enough. Actually, you didn't realize I had 70 people. And they go, oh, okay. You know what I mean? So it's not just about getting the bad news out of them. It's like just calibrating and going, you know, I do this other stuff as well, by the way, you know, which you spend somewhere else. Not. Maybe I could package that together and, you know what I mean? Walking with dinosaurs was a big step. What was the next significant move up for you? Well, the, the other end of it is obviously something like gravity. Harry Potter obviously arriving in the UK was an important one for the community. We were, um, as a community and ourselves particularly, were doing work for American television, for miniseries. And they were using all the top film talent at a time when the film industry wasn't particularly busy. So by the time Harry Potter came along, we had spent three, four, five years doing quite high-end drama for American television using top British talent. And that effectively is what Warner Brothers tapped into when they then came to do Harry Potter. In the first film, most of the work was done in America. And those of us here were given a little bit of work. By the time we got to the eighth film, it was all done in the UK. So Harry Potter was important, not just to Framestill, but to the community, because we built capacity. We showed Hollywood that we could deal with very large, multiple films at the same time. Um, So that was an important breakthrough, as I say, for the community, which in turn obviously impacted on us you know we ended up going from 200 people it to a thousand people in the course of that period every time you cracked it you realized that you got through it by the skin of your teeth in terms of those projects are really ambitious and so you know just keeping up with them was a challenge you felt relieved but of course that lasted one weekend before the next large project had to start on the monday morning so i think we felt satisfied and proud one end and on the end, we're in thinking, I've got 800 to 1,000 people, and I've got the next three or four big projects in, and that was yesterday, and there's tomorrow to deal with. So I think when you run a business which um, is succeeding, you actually focus on the future rather than the past. And you have to, because actually this is a very competitive world that we're in. Yeah. And our industry is unbelievably competitive. And the best talent is hard to find. Yeah, the best talent is always in short supply because it's a growing sector. The top talent obviously initially went off to America during the 90s, and so we obviously had to get them back during the 2000s in order to do the work. Because the UK became a credible centre, all the British people had gone to the West Coast to obviously work on film because film was perceived to be obviously for them the ultimate. Suddenly they were in their early 30s, had families, and could actually get a job in the UK doing the same sort of work as they were doing the West Coast. My colleagues have unbelievably high standards. They push themselves as well as their colleagues to do absolute world-class work. That makes for an easy job selling because I know that they care deeply about what they do and about the quality of the image and the storytelling that they're facilitating. And therefore, all my businesses since I left college have all been creative industries partnering with world-class people. So the secret is very simple. If you can find a couple of world-class artists of whatever form and whatever sector you happen to be in in the creative industries and facilitate what they do and don't get in their way, then um, you'll have fun. A few hairy nights as well, because by definition they'd like to spend way more on the budget than the project can afford. So the job of a manager in my case is to deliver on the ambitions while taking care of the cash flow. I asked Julian Birkenshaw of the London Business School to comment on William Sargent's story and on the unique challenges posed by a creative business like Framestore. I think his overriding story of being an ambitious entrepreneur, trying something very, very different, and having the, the guts, if you like, to kind of stick with it over the long term through all the 
ups and downs that he faced is a real lesson for entrepreneurs. And, and in particular, you can sense that he's very sensitive to the vulnerability of what he's created. Whatever he's doing, you know, could be wiped out if he doesn't stay on top of the latest trends and the latest technological improvements. And you can see him always saying, I need to look at what's coming now and I need to make sure that I'm going to secure the next round of, of activity because everything that's done in the past, however good, is ultimately the past and that's not going to sustain the employees that I've hired. I think there's real lessons for anybody who's managing creative, high-talented people and his point of view, of course, is that everyone holds themselves to very high standards in this world. So you don't have to manage them in a traditional sense. You've just got to hire the best people. You've got to make sure that they then have the opportunity to hire great people around them. They're almost self-regulating. And his job is then to make sure that you know he's getting encumbrances out of the way. He's giving them opportunities. And he's also pushing them to explore new areas that they haven't thought of before. And a big part of that, of course, is tolerating and accepting that some of those things are going to fail. He's got to be prepared, of course, to hire people who do not agree with him about everything, people who are deliberately challenging and difficult to work with. That's the nature of creative people. It's the same in academia, by the way. I very much understand this notion that you're hiring people who have a talent in a particular area that you can potentially harness, but don't always make your life easy as a leader or, or a manager. We'll leave the last word to our entrepreneur, William Sargent. What are the lessons he'd offer other entrepreneurs based on his experience? Let's get this right, right? This is not a fault-free, faultless 30-year history. This is one that's littered with uh, mistakes I can go back and point to. But what we were always doing was moving forward. We never stood still. And so actually, it's better to keep moving and taking risks and making mistakes than to stand still. And I feel that that's the thing I've brought to the company. My colleagues are really good at delivering the, what we do. And I feel my job is to go, yeah, because there's sort of a new road we should try down there. And maybe we should do this. And you know what I mean? is to keep sort of trying to be out reconnoitering the new landscapes out there you know past few years has obviously been virtual reality next few years will be artificial intelligence and things like that you know what i mean in other words yeah. it's like what's going to come and bite us and what's going to be an opportunity and both of those are the ceo's sort of again antenna and awareness the moment to give an example of brexit ostensibly we're well positioned because most of our revenue is dollar denominated and so i've become more competitive than i was so you look at that and you go oh, that's great but equally i'm aware that my colleagues you know we're all living in the UK, will get hit by inflation in 18 and 19. And the UK economy will be sort of not in a great shape, potentially. And so I'm trying to work out the good and the bad news. And so my big repositioning of the company is to make sure that as the global economy is repositioning itself to include India, the Asian countries and China, I'm making sure that my share of the global economy is equally balanced out between Europe and America, which is obviously where most of my business is, with what effectively is a vibrant economic area. We're seeing the world at the moment with obviously um, a lot of changes politically. We obviously, we've seen America and the UK with Brexit and Trump. So I look at all that and then going, eh, people are becoming protectionist, people are becoming um, anti-immigration. I know economically the UK's power has come from immigration, which I'm an example of one. The fact that we have an open economy has been one of the strengths of the UK economy. So we're in, entering a five-year period when people are getting protectionist and, and feeling that globalization hasn't benefited them. And I am trying to understand how that's going to affect me. It will affect us. I'm just trying to understand the exact consequences. Of it. Next week, we talk to an arts graduate who teamed up with scientists 
to turn what started as just a fun idea into a fixing product popular with the worldwide maker community. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.